Hey, pals, guess what? You can take the big listen with you wherever you go with the NPR One app. NPR One finds you the best from public radio and beyond. Are you saying that you want election essentials? Got it. How about local stories? Oh, you're covered. And your favorite podcasts like The Big Listen? Yeah, you can get all of that on NPR One. NPR One is there when you want to take a trip or you have to wait in line at the grocery store. Or how about when you're changing your baby's diaper? Boom. NPR One makes that all better. So find NPR One in your app store. And thanks. A couple weeks ago, we razzed a little government podcast. Did you listen to this government <laughs> accountability watchdog report? <laughs> what if I, I, do you want an honest plus. answer? I do want an honest, honest answer. Okay, the honest answer is not yet. You should listen to this week. <laughs> it was an excellent, excellent piece. Um, the government accountability, <laughs> I'm going to defend this. In spell. This is going to be on my gravestone. <laughs> it was a husband father, single solitary listener of the Government Accountability Office podcast. (laughs) Welcome to GAO's Watchdog Report, your source for news and information. Sounds a little on the dry side, right? But the GAO actually does all kinds of cool stuff. Bees are a big deal for U.S. agriculture. Can you give me a sense of just how important they are? Yes, well, you know, bees are... This week... We're taking a field trip to the Government Accountability Office. Woo! Field trip! Uh, my name is Jacques Arsenault, and I'm Digital Communications Manager at the U.S. Government Accountability Office, or GAO. There's a sign behind Jacques' desk that reads, Jacques of all trades. Um, do people actually call you Jacques of all trades? Um, I see that sign points. hanging right, behind the, my, you. My mother-in-law had that made, or she uh, found a jack-of-all-trades sign and, uh, and, and repainted <laughs> it herself. She's very crafty. Really? Yes. I'm Lauren Ober, and from WAMU and NPR, this is The Big Listen, the broadcast about podcasts. Each week on The Big Listen, we introduce you to podcasts you might not have ever heard of, and we give you the inside scoop on shows you already love. Okay, now we didn't come down to the Government Accountability Office to talk about Jacques' punny nickname, though it is pretty good. No, we're here to learn a little bit more about basically how the government communicates with us, the citizens of America. Unless you're one of our listener friends from abroad, if so, guten tag. But seriously, what is the GAO? I don't know. Do you? Officially, we are an independent legislative agency uh, that provides fact-based, nonpartisan analysis and evaluation of federal programs and spending. Sorry, come again? In simpler terms, we look at how the government works. The GAO writes about a thousand reports a year on every conceivable topic. You want to know about expenditures for algae abatement programs? There's a report for that. How about federal air marshals' mission readiness? There is a report for that, too. What used to happen is we had these blue books, uh, and so these reports would be, you know, 30 to 100 or sometimes more pages. Oh uh, and they would go up, uh, and they would be printed out and then hand-carried up to Capitol Hill and dropped off in all the members' oh offices. Oh, my God. That's got to be the worst job the person has to carry all those. I think they probably had good, strong biceps. But, <laughs> but I think they were probably also happy, you know, when we moved digital. Not only did they go all digital, but in 2010, they dove into the world of podcasting. 
we had somebody from this office who literally took a voice recorder and went into somebody's office and oh just asked God, them questions. Oh my God, so great. Uh, we've evolved from, uh, from one guy with a microphone. <laughs> We will hear more from Jacques about the GAO's foray into podcasting later on in the show. But now we're going to turn our attention to a hot topic these days, Islam. It's been in the news pretty much nonstop this election cycle. Last night you told CNN, quote, Islam hates us. Did you mean all 1.6 billion Muslims? I mean a lot of them. I mean a lot of them. But Islam is more than a few buzzwords tossed around at debates. Though sometimes you wouldn't know that because it's rare that we hear from actual Muslims in the news. Taz Ahmed and Zara Norbash are trying to change that. No work at no. Welcome to Good Muslim, Bad Muslim. Just a couple of Muslim women making a bunch of people uncomfortable and then laughing about it. This is Taz. And this is Zara. The show is basically a discussion between two friends about being a Muslim woman in America circa 2016. Taz is an activist and storyteller in L.A. Her partner in crime, Zara, is a stand-up comedian in San Francisco. Zara Norbosh, avowed pork eater and wife of an infidel. Glad to have you on the big listen. Uh, but first, can we start with a couple of definitions? Because you guys use a lot of terms on your show that maybe some listeners might not be totally familiar with. Oh, we need like a little um, musical cue for like glossary time. <laughs> exactly. This is the non-Muslim glossary hour. All right. Haram. Bad. Okay. Sharia. Sharia is, uh, it's not like a set code of conduct. Like there, there are laws in there that are disputed and courts discuss them and it's very, very complicated. And it was a word that I never knew growing up. That's how little relevance it had to me as a Muslim American. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what Sharia law was until Fox told me. And there's so much about Islam that Fox News continues to teach me. <laughs> Alhamdulillah, Fox News. And then um, you guys have reference heaven points. So maybe you could, that might not be a, a technical term, but maybe you could let us in on, on what you're talking about there. The heaven points uh, is something that I grew up with. And it's actually been really fun. One of the perks of the podcast has been getting to know what is something that is cultural versus doctrine versus disputed doctrine. Growing up as a Shia Iranian Muslim, I learned about Savab. And uh, I learned about it as a kind of point system. And this isn't like a technical way of regarding it. I think it's just when you're in religion class as an 11-year-old kid and your teacher talks about good deeds and bad deeds, like I immediately understood it as a point system. So, uh, so you guys turned out okay then. You're on the positive side of the good deed uh, point system. I think that's what our entire podcast explores. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Growing up, I always felt like I was also in the bad deed column and I was like constantly trying to like score heaven points. What I like about your show is that it's this um it's sort of real, like it's highbrow, lowbrow a little bit. I mean, you're touching on pop culture things, and but you're also talking about really intense issues like profiling and being a model minority and all of this stuff. And I, I wonder what were your designs on the show when, it, when you started? How did you want to frame this idea sort of good Muslim, bad Muslim? 
the first episode, we sort of sat down and just started talking and realized there were a million tangents and directions we could go and that we needed some kind of template. And uh, like Taz basically read my mind uh, when she sent me an email with Creeping Sharia and Good Muslim Awards and fatwas. And I have always wanted to issue fatwas. I was ecstatic. <laughs> Oh, that's another word I feel like we should define. Why don't we describe fatwa, uh, give a brief definition. A fatwa is a call out to the Muslim planet for an order of death or destruction. Right. Just death and destruction. No bigs. So I want to talk about some of your your more recent episodes um, and sort of how they came about. One that I, I... found quite entertaining was your sex episode, naturally. Edible burkas. Oh, you mean like sexy edible underwear? Yeah, but a burka over your whole body. (laughs) That is a lot of work, I have to say. That's a lot of (laughs) fruit roll-ups to eat through to get to the good stuff. I feel like Americans can do it. (laughs) <laughs> I feel like right? we could get there. Yeah, I feel like the edible burka is like an American invention, right? It's like you have to eat through a lot to get to the sexy part. It totally is because it's like <laughs> consumption of women in the female form, of course. <laughs> so tell me more about this edible burka. Afghan-born artist Behnaz Babazadeh hopes to spark a conversation about the burka by wrapping herself in candy. It looks delicious. In addition to the, you know, the great conversations that you're having, I think you have such fun segments on your on your show. Um, can you describe what Creeping Sharia is and, um, and and sort of like how that presents itself in, in, in your show? Creeping Sharia is all the ways in which we're winning. <laughs> Muslims are infiltrating we are winning. Every instance of something Muslimy, Muslimish, Muslim-like uh, <laughs> becoming dangerously normal to the U.S. population. So tell me a couple of ways that Muslims are winning, how, you know, Sharia is creeping in. Ooh, so many. Chipotle no longer serves pork. Ooh. We've got Chipotle. Yeah, well done. You <laughs> nailed nailed that. New Zealand, all the lamb is halal. Uh, so, haha, you're eating Muslim meat, which probably makes you Muslim. <laughs> Good thing I'm a vegetarian. Oh, and then recently, the, it be, there there's kind of this uh, controversy about... Uh, what is good or bad for the quote-unquote Muslim community, right, that, that we sort of dialogue about, like H&M having um, hijab, having selling scarves now, and mm-hmm. Dolce & Gabbana selling scarves now. Like, what do we think about that? All right, Creeping Sharia. Um, okay, so my Creeping Sharia is, um, back to my favorite topic, Barbie dolls. <laughs> and um, it's a Nigerian student who is taking all of her Barbie dolls and putting a hijab on them. And she has this Instagram account. And I think uh, I think that's a good way of re- retaking the Barbie doll, which was such a tool of iconic Western beauty. And she's reimagining it with a, uh, a hijab. I can't. Ah, ah, Barbie, no. No. What what don't you like about it? I mean, this is just to me this is like creeping patriarchy. 
This is well, the creepy patriarchy segment now. Like, yeah. What don't you like about it? Did you not play with Barbies growing up? I totally played with Barbies, and they made me miserable, just like Cinderella. Oh, uh, what do you mean? Expand. Well, okay, first of all, the tag on this Instagram says, you know, she's an alternative role model. Uh, no, please. please. Please don't do that. Please don't make her the alternative role model. I don't need hijabi to be the alternative role model. I also hate that the, there's this term hijabi, like, just the... I don't know. The, women are so objectified as it is, and it feels like more and more the the Western use in ter- of this terminology is to, like, make hijab just another form of objectifying women. It's just another way of objectifying women, turning them into objects. I, I know that also, like, saying hijabi and hijabi is a way that we take those terms back. I'm I'm in a place where I'm not at ease with it, and I definitely... Like, I love that this girl was able to take her Barbie and make it so that it reflected her. That's awesome. Do I love Barbie? No. And I set my Barbies on fire as a kid. That's what I did. (laughs) Now, uh, in that sort of vein of, you know, the ways that Muslims are winning, you you offer your Good Muslim Award um, every episode. My Good Muslim Award I want to give to... Kelly Love, who is being heralded as the Kurdish Shakira. She just released a music video, which is called Revolution, for this Iraqi pop star to sing these songs and to have a value that she's trying to push through her songs is so brave. And I think folks who listen to this podcast know that I really, truly believe in the power of art in culture to shift politics. And I think that's what she's trying to do here. And not just that she's trying to shift politics through her music, but, you know, these are her people and she's trying to give a voice to her people in this really beautiful way. And the song's pretty good, too. One more question, which is, um, I do like your Ask a Muslim when you guys, when you have your... uh, Ask a Muslim uh, segment. Do you are there some annoying questions that keep coming up? The one of the reasons why we called it the awkward Ask a Muslim question is because of the power dynamic that is at play when we get asked them. So it's like what what makes it awkward and frustrating to get asked these questions is like it's from your boss, you're at work, or it's by your in-laws, your your husband's uncle at Thanksgiving. And, <laughs> you know, how am I supposed to correct this person about the way that they address me and, and f- reword their question for them? But, like, also, it's dinner time. Right. Like, you, you don't want to be, like, the the representative of all Muslims, right? Yeah, I think that's kind of why we did the, or, or at least for me, that's the freedom of the, the, the awkward Ask a Muslim segment gave me the cathartic experience of it is that even sometimes when it's a genuine question or it's a well-meaning question, it is the power dynamic that's at play. Zara Norbash is the host of the show Good Muslim, Bad Muslim, along with Taz Ahmed. You can get more info about their show at biglisten.org. While you're there, drop us a line. Let us know if you have any awkward Ask a Muslim questions. We will be sure to pass them along. We're going to need to get our break on now, but when we come back, we'll head out to Oregon to catch up with the reporters from This Land is Our Land. 
They've been following the trial of Ammon Bundy, who was recently acquitted after occupying federal lands in Oregon. I was standing outside the courtroom and suddenly the doors burst open and people come flooding out and I hear Anna Brown saying, clear the courtroom, we're clearing the courtroom right now. That's coming up in just a minute here on The Big Listen. Stick with us. This is NPR. Hey pals, thanks for listening to The Big Listen. I have to urge you right now to check out NPR's Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. It is your guide to what's good in pop culture. Every week, our pal Jesse interviews people like comedian Cameron Esposito and actresses Rashida Jones and Felicity Huffman about their creative work and lives. Find your new favorite TV shows, books, movies, and music, and gain new insights into the things you already love. I have to say, I love Rashida Jones, so I'm going to check that out ASAP. Find Bullseye now on the NPR One app and at npr.org slash podcasts. My name is Elizabeth Kernitz. I'm calling from New York City, and I am loving this relatively new podcast, Leave a Message After the Tone. Each episode asks people to call in to respond to a particular question. Tell us your story after the beep. They then edit the pieces together to create sort of a story. And I felt so lonely because the one person that I wanted to talk to about the friendship breakup wasn't there to talk to me about it. In her British accent, she said, you know, Rose, I just feel like you're a really bad friend and I just don't want to be friends with you anymore. Feels like being a fly on the wall, hearing people's inner feelings and such. It's, it's, it's fun. That's it. Bye. Welcome back to The Big Listen. I'm Lauren Ober, and I want to know what your playlist is looking like these days. So give me a jingle anytime on the pod line. Seriously, day or night, 24-7, we are open for biz. The number is 202-885-POD1. Please tell me all the things. After more than a month in court... Ammon Bundy and six others have been acquitted after an armed occupation of federal lands in Oregon. The standoff in January lasted 41 days and ended after law enforcement shot and killed one of the occupiers. Major developments in the refuge takeover in eastern Oregon. Shots fired as the feds move in, arresting militia leaders. We have a subject with gunshot wound. Since the trial started in September, our pals at Oregon Public Broadcasting have been in the courtroom following the whole melee. Ammon Bundy is not guilty! Ryan Bundy is not And the team has been covering the trial in a novel way, with a podcast. FYI, we talked to our OPB friends before the verdict came down, just so you know. Welcome to This Land is Our Land from OPB. This is a podcast about the trial of the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge occupation. Amanda Peacher and Conrad Wilson, two of the producers on This Land is Our Land, welcome to The Big Listen. Thanks. Good to be here. It's great to be here. Thanks. Um, All right. So why cover the trial in podcast form, in this sort of serial um, storytelling form? 
Well, I can start with that one. When we were covering the actual occupation, we saw tremendous interest in the daily goings-on at the refuge, but also just from around the country and even around the world. It was one of the biggest news events of the year, if not several years, in Oregon. And so we knew that the federal trial for the occupiers was going to be something, again, of, of pretty big interest. But the consequences here are, are pretty important, not only for the future of federal lands, but also how the government deals with these kinds of standoffs in the future. When um, when it first happened, when the Malheur occupation first happened, do you guys remember what you each thought at the time? Um, because I remember thinking, like, that's bananas that people would do that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it took me a while to actually understand the story, even as I was, was covering it. It was a very weird story, to, especially to explain to people who were in other parts of the country um, just like, yeah, so there's this this bird sanctuary that's in the middle of nowhere that these guys have taken over to protect this ranching family in Harney County. I mean, like as as you're kind of explaining this story, it's just it's like, oh, my gosh, how is this even a thing? It was clear that Ammon had something planned for Harney County, but it wasn't clear exactly what. He and a few other groups took part in a rally in Burns on January 2nd in support of the Hammonds. The Hammonds were supposed to report to prison two days later. But then Ammon and a few of his supporters gathered in Burns in the Safeway parking lot and laid out a new plan. He led them to the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge. And in an interview at the refuge posted to Facebook that day, Ammon Bundy explained their goals. We have uh, basically taken over the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge. And this will become a a base place for uh, patriots from all over the country to come and to be housed here and and live here. And we're planning on staying here for several years. And while we're here, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be freeing these lands up and letting, getting the ranchers back to ranching, getting the miners back to mining, getting the loggers back to logging, and where they can do it under the protection of the people and not be afraid of this this tyranny that's been up on them. I had actually had a little bit of a heads up. Uh, to the story before January 2nd, which is the day that Ammon Bundy and his followers led people out to the refuge to actually take it over. Mm-hmm. So a couple of days before the occupation actually started, I, I published a story about people's fear and anxiety leading up to the protests that uh, preceded the occupation. Wait, did you think, though, that the, the refuge would be taken over? I didn't think that the refuge necessarily would be taken over, but I was definitely worried that something big could happen, and I was definitely watching. And ironically, I was scheduled to be on a couple of days vacation on the Saturday that... Of course. <laughs> right, that, that it was happening, and our editor said, you know, we're going to send our Saturday reporter... I think it'll be fine. We don't have any indication that this is going to blow up. So we'll call you if we need you. And sure enough, I packed up my bags from the little vacation hotel we were staying at and drove immediately to Burns. Oh, it's fine. Right. I mean, exactly. You know, it's not it's not often that you get to cover um, such a massive story like this that really did captivate um, I think the entire country. You know, in the beginning, it seemed like, oh, this, you know, how could this last very long. But then it did. And we are fascinated. Well, I think there were a lot of layers to this story, not only the reasons why the Bundys originally showed up, but then then they were saying that they wanted to 
return federal lands or, or turn over federal lands to local control. And that's a message that resonated with some people and also really irked a lot of people across the country. You know, we, we hear about these battles on the environmental front that usually have to do with uh, how much grazing should we allow in a given area or how many trees should we cut down. But the idea and the very concept of public lands and whether or not they should be in federal hands isn't something that all that many people have challenged. Kiran Suckling from the Center for Biological Diversity was probably the most visible and vocal environmentalist during the occupation. He was there to counter the occupier's message with one about the importance of public lands. So this week we checked back in with Kiran to hear what's been going on since the occupation. He's actually seen a surge of Bundy followers at public forest service or Bureau of Land Management meetings. The Bundys have successfully brought them together and they've realized now that, oh, there are BLM and Forest Service decision processes going on all over. And so we're seeing them now start to show up at these. And you can always tell the militia types. These people get up and start talking about guns and that the government has no right to own land and they're not even talking about the environment anymore. And you're like, oh, wow, the militia folks just came into the room. And and I wonder, you know, through while you've been watching all of this and, and sort of taking these deep dives, what have you gleaned about this notion of a, a patriot movement? Well, I would say uh, from from a from a court standpoint, I mean, I've seen over and over again people talk about the fact that they're very pro-government, they're very pro-federal government. They just don't think the federal government has the ability to to own public land, and they think that the federal government is overreaching and is really, um, you know, the way in which it, it's functioning now is is outside the bounds of the Constitution. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the occupation provided a couple of things to this so-called patriot movement. Number one. Uh, Ammon Bundy is now seen as as a sort of leader. He's charismatic. He's soft spoken. Um, he's he's often pretty articulate, and now he's viewed as a political prisoner. So this used to be a movement that um, was kind of it was it was happening in various communities, and and people would gather and talk. But now there's really a cause to rally around. And secondly, the de- death of Lavoy Finicum, um, who was one of the occupation spokespeople killed by OSP, Oregon State Police Troopers, during the occupation. In him, they have a sort of martyr. So we've seen the Patriot Movement conglomerate around this call to turn lands over to local control, strengthened since the occupation. If you think about the the political consequences of this, the power that this gives him as a potential leader of a movement is incredible. Huge. To go through an experience like this, to, to be put on the stand, to, to take the risk, to assert that what you're doing is right, and to be acquitted by a jury of your peers. I mean, it's an amazing, it's an amazing political moment for the movement. Mm. Now, what um, what has most surprised each of you in covering both the occupation and the case? Okay, so for me, I mean, this has just been an experience in a way of thinking in which I knew was out there, but I hadn't really uh, reported on it extensively and and really like um, gotten in, you know deep in the weeds about you know with with just land transfer movements and the patriot movement and and 
really the way a lot of people view the Constitution as, as this thing that is not being upheld by our federal government. I've kind of I don't know. I, I think it in the past. Maybe I, I've written I've written that off. Mm hmm. I was surprised by how fascinating and interesting the occupiers are are and were to talk to throughout the occupation. I mean, mm-hmm. they if you think about it, a lot of them left jobs, they left their families, they left their communities to come and do this kind of out there action that very well could have landed many of them in prison and and we'll see with the outcome of the trial if if that happens, but it takes a lot to to do that. And so the level of their conviction and uh, the story behind that conviction was just really interesting to me. So I, I guess like Conrad, I haven't done that much reporting uh, on such a minority view and such a specific view on the government and the Constitution. So it's been really interesting to dig in and make sure that we represent that view fairly, but also provide an honest critique of it by legal experts and by others in the field. Right. But it's interesting because while it may be a minority view, I mean, I think that we see, you know, the, there's a, a thread that goes through this that ends up, you know, in the the current political, you know, the presidential race. Do you think this this is uh, sort of like a, a uh, th- that the occupation is is some type of bellwether for where we're headed? Um, yeah, you've got people that are, are are really angry about the federal government, and here's an, here's a reason to to kind of rail against it. I don't think it is a, I don't think it is about where we're going, but I think it is uh, a voice very much so that um, is not being heard and feels that you know extreme actions, sort of like taking over a refuge, are a way to get heard. Mm-hmm. I do think it's representative of the disenfranchisement and and discontent that we are seeing in a lot of rural communities in the West. A lot of people really upset with the, de- the divisiveness in Congress and upset with their government. And here's a cause that they can kind of rally behind to show that frustration. Amanda Peacher and Conrad Wilson are part of the team behind the podcast This Land is Our Land from Oregon Public Broadcasting. You can find out more about their show on our website, biglisten.org. It's time for another lightning fast break. But when we come back, we'll dish with the host of the only James Beard Award winning podcast about the dangers of reporting on food. I make food puns all of the time and half of them are unconscious. It is just like so deeply in my language now. (laughs) (laughs) That's coming up next on The Big Listen. Stay tuned. This is NPR. Hi, this is David Levy calling. I'm a resident in Washington, D.C. I'd like to give a rave review about a podcast called Astronomy Cast. So it's hard enough finding your way around planet Earth. But what do you do when you're trying to find your way around the solar system? There's three dimensions. Today we're going to talk about how spacecraft navigate from world to world. And next episode, we're going to talk about how they get from star to star. In the future. In the in the future, how it will happen. Uh, okay, cool. So, Pamela, let's, let's just start. They've been doing the show for, I don't know, eight or nine years at this point. There are like 400 podcasts. Um, and the... 
the format is just tremendous. Um, it's like a very long course in, in astronomy, and, and I've learned so much. Okay, bye. Hey, friends, I'm Lauren Ober, and this is The Big Listen. Hey, you know what would be so fun? If you called me on the pod line and left me a message about what shows you're listening to. The number is 202-885-POD1. So get on the horn. Seriously, it's so fun. I cannot even tell you how fun it's going to be when you call. Now, for those of you playing along at home, you will know that it's time for Listen Up. That's the part of the show where we grill your favorite pod people, reporters, producers, hosts, about what they are putting their ears on. This week, I'm joined by Tina Antolini of Gravy from the Southern Foodways Alliance. Full disclosure, I once reported a story for Gravy. You might know Tina as a Peabody award-winning producer on the show State of the Reunion. This is State of the Reunion. But when the show went off the air, Tina turned her microphone to food, specifically the food of the New South. Imagine a dinner table in rural Kentucky, 1955. You have your cornbread, fried potatoes, greasy beans, mixed pickles. And then there's one dish that marks a seismic shift in Appalachian life. What was it? A jello salad makes the meal. Like this dazzling beauty, a glamour salad made with new apple jello. You're listening to Gravy. 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 Stories of the changing American South through the foods we eat. We are a production of the Southern Foodways Alliance. I'm Tina Antolini. And today, what can that glamour jello salad tell us about changes to life on the farm in 1950s Appalachia? Tina Antolini of Gravy, thanks for coming on The Big Listen. My pleasure. All right, so tell me why food? What was your interest in stories about food? Well, ever since I was a small child, my, my mom actually was a, a cookbook editor when I was very small. Hmm. And so I grew up in the kind of family that she would spend like three hours preparing dinner and I would fall asleep with my face in my plate. So food <laughs> was always this sort of ancillary you know, thread in my life. And working in public radio for a long time and working for the show State of the Reunion, which traveled around the country telling stories about what built community, I noticed that food was always this sort of thread to a local community as well. It was like a way to get in and get at the identity of a place. And it started me thinking that even though there are public radio food shows out there and ones that I've listened to for a long time, like The Splendid Table, there wasn't really a show that was using the narrative possibilities of food. In my mind, food was this intersection point between environment and culture, between business and health, and that, that meant that like, basically there were many, many, many different directions you could go in as a storyteller and that nobody was really doing that. And so there really felt like there was this gap in the audio storytelling landscape uh, for someone to use food this way. Mm-hmm. Now, clearly, you have been successful at this because <laughs> you are a recent recipient of James Beard Award, which like when we think of James Beard, we think of fancy chefs and cookbook writers and you're right up there with them. Tell me a little bit about that. What was that like? I mean, it's wild to have something that you had been daydreaming about for a few years before you decide to like, you know, leap off the cliff and try to make it happen, mm. which, you know, this would not be what it was without the Southern Foodways Alliance as my partner. But by the time 
I found them. It had been something I was stewing on for a few years. No pun so, intended. Yes, stewing. I'm making, I make food puns all of the time, and half of them are unconscious. It is just like so deeply in my language <laughs> now. <laughs> um, but yeah, to have, to have that recognized so quickly into its life is just enormously gratifying. And I think also speaks to the sort of moment that we are with food in this country, like people are ready for us to take food into more substantive directions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I kind of have to think that in doing this show, you have to eat a lot. Is that true? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't say that that's a downside, really, <laughs> to this job. <laughs> it depends on what your metabolism is like. Luckily, I was blessed with a with a good metabolism. I'm, but, you know, the truth is, is that also like like I was saying, we're not always reporting on the most delicious things. So so I'm remembering a story several months ago. My intern and I went to Little Little Rock, Arkansas, to do a story on cheese dip. All right, Dana, the original cheese dip. It's spicier. Oh my gosh, it's so much spicier than the other one. I'm going back for a second. At the beginning, I was stoked, and by midway through, I was like, this is not a mountain I'm sure I can climb. And by the end, it was like, I will never, I, won't, I don't want to see cheese dip ever again in my life. <laughs> you were in the thick of it with food all the time with this show. Do you ever listen to other shows that are about food? I mean, there are a handful of them out there. They're doing different things than you are, but, or is that more like work? Do you, do you steer away from podcasts that are about food? Yeah. The funny thing is, is that I, I don't often listen to podcasts about food partially because, and this is not to slam any other food podcasts, but I'm really drawn to narrative storytelling podcasts and there mm -hmm. just aren't others out there that are doing that. I mean, the Kitchen Sisters podcast sometimes does it and I love them. I follow them religiously. But other than that, I'm listening to podcasts that are about many other things because that's where my interest lies. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So then what are you listening to? <laughs> so what are they? You know, I've been really getting into one called Scene on Radio from a guy named John Bewin, whom I've known for a long time. He's a um, longtime public radio guy. Um, and it's Scene, like S-C-E-N-E, -E, Scene on Radio. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and... It's a really rich documentary show. There was an episode quite a few back now that was about a woman documenting her own experience of cancer, or her cancer diagnosis and mm -hmm. treatment that was like unlike any other radio I've really ever listened to. Um, it was so intimate and beautiful. And that hooked me on John's show. Before she landed in the hospital, the woman had been a radio intern at a media outlet in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. That's why she had a microphone and a recorder with her. She was new at making radio. That's a phrase that radio producers use to talk about audio storytelling. She felt like making radio was how she'd get through this. Maybe it was just a way to buffer the fall. In any case, not all the recordings are sad. Say so, a half hour between. A half hour between the two doses, so I might start feeling kind of icky. Oh, good, a phone call. Well, I can, you know, time it a little later. Okay, because I often feel kind of broke. Can I get that? Yeah. I'm so excited to do the phone call. How do I answer? Just hit the red. Hello. 
Oh, room service. You make it sound like a hotel. Oh, did you get a menu? I'm always a big fan, too, of what Erica Heilman is doing with Rumble Strip Vermont. Mm-hmm. Have other folks mentioned her to you? I have heard her name a couple of times, yes. Yeah. she. So she, I don't know whether I'm like particularly drawn to regional-ish podcasts that also like are way more universal than just their region. I mean, technically she's doing stories that are about Vermont, but the one that I've like passed on to many, many different people just because I think it's a gem of a piece of audio is one from now a few months ago that um, was a non-narrated piece of women from many different ages, like ranging from toddler to in their 80s, talking about their sense of time passing. And it was like such an expansive 20 minutes of tape. And they may have all been Vermonters, but it, this was totally a universal um, story that they were telling mm-hmm. of their sense of the elasticity of time. You know, it was really cool. It didn't bother me turning 80. In fact, I was surprised when the doctor said, so how do you feel about turning 80? And so, you know, this was something that he was noticing more than I was. And you know, I, I felt that it was saying, how does it feel to be that much closer to death? Uh, and, you know, I don't think about that. You know, I don't, or I think about it, but it doesn't bother me. I, that's just part of living. And, and I didn't feel that 80 was uh, anything particularly uh, traumatic as far as I was concerned. It's mostly the, the reactions I get from other people. My best age is going to be 30. You're still not old, and you don't have to worry about wrinkles and gray hair. And you still can like wear a ton of stuff that you wouldn't wear when you're older. You can like shorter skirts. Um, but you're still kind of starting to think about settling down, getting married, having kids. So uh, anything else that we need to be putting our ears on? There's a there's a podcast from a guy named Trey K called Us and Them. I don't know if you've heard of that one. Mm-mm. It's uh, uh, I think their tagline is something like stories from both sides of the great American cultural divide. The one the episode that I started with was one where he sent two American foreign correspondents. So people who are from here, but usually are covering like wars overseas to Louisiana to cover the debate over whether Confederate monuments should come down. (laughs) And they were two reporters of color (laughs) who were covering that. (laughs) Well, let's go. I guess we're just going to try to be super nice. If they don't want to talk, I'll just kind of hang around and watch. It was a sweltering Thursday afternoon. As we approached Lee Circle, my heart started pounding. There were dozens of white Southerners waving Confederate flags. It barely seemed real. I cursed myself. What was I doing here? Why did I need to walk into this crowd and point a microphone at them? Had I forgotten that I was black? I'd reported in Somalia and Iraq, but I really didn't want to be in New Orleans at that moment. Robert Bonner, sir. Robert Bonner. Bonner, nice to meet you. I'm I'm Mike Oniego. Mike. This is Rupa. Hey, Rupa. Nice to meet you. It turns out the ralliers were actually pretty friendly. 
They shook our hands and welcomed us enthusiastically and offered us water bottles and were the embodiment of so-called southern hospitality. But things got weird almost immediately. We started speaking to Robert Bonner. He seemed to be one of the leaders. Our conversation turned pretty quickly to the Confederate flag. He wanted us to know that the flag was not a racist symbol and that the people at the rally weren't racists. We want everybody to realize this is heritage, not hate. What do you hope? What do you say to the people who are offended by it? I mean, what would you most, say? Most, most of the most of the time, you can't get a word in edgewise. Sure. If, if they're if they're offended, I ask them. You know, God loves you just as much as He does me. And if you're willing to listen to what I have to say, okay, please listen. My family owned slaves. Okay, they stayed with my family till the 1950s. They took on my last name, the Bonner name. They loved the family. They were treated as family. But the worst thing that ever happened in this country was slavery. That was the first time someone had ever told me to my face that slavery wasn't as bad as it was made out to be. But it would happen again and again as the days and weeks unfolded. I was stunned. I let Bonner read so basically what he's doing is taking these like totally hot-button issues and sending people in to like, try to have some sort of conversation about them with, you know, way more respect to both sides of the political spectrum Mm -hmm. than usually you find even on public radio. So I appreciate what he's doing with that show. Tina Antolini is the host of Gravy from the Southern Foodways Alliance, and she makes good gravy. To find out more about any of the shows Tina recommended, check out BigListen.org. It has all the links. We have almost reached the end of this week's episode. No, say it ain't so. But before we let you go, it's time for... C-H-A-R-T-O-G-R-A-P-H-Y. Chartography is our 60-second mapping of the iTunes charts, but we are not looking at number one, or even number 100. We are looking at number 289. And in a sea of tens of thousands of podcasts, 289 is really respectable. So this week's 289 is a show from the USA Today called... I Tell My Husband the News. And if you are wondering what could the show possibly be about, the title says it all. A woman named Shannon Green, who is a reporter at USA Today, who... (laughs) basically recites the news to her husband, whose name is Dusty Terrell. Which is just, sorry, it's a bonkers name. Anyway, um, so Dusty doesn't really like reading. He's a stand-up comedian, but he doesn't read. So poor Shannon is left with the responsibility of updating her husband on all of the things that are happening in the world. So they talk about um, they talk about the Samsung phone situation. No one should have to be concerned. Their phone will endanger them, their family, or their property. And then Dusty, Shannon, we could capitalize on this whole thing. Comes up with all of these inventions. Oven mitts that can also allow you to still use your thumbs to control the touch screen. Oh, they have this section called uh, News I Selected to Delight My Husband. So she explained that there would be this ban lifted on Cuban cigars. What? Except that then she told him, you're not going to be able to order Cuban cigars from your house. You're going to have to like go to Cuba. No. I keep laughing because it's it's an entertaining show 
I just feel bad for for Shannon. Like, I hope that I hope Dusty's doing something for her too. Because if I had to read the news to my partner because they didn't pay attention, I would be like real bummed out. Because you are extremely intelligent, you know that you are listening to a podcast. But did you know that the show will magically appear in your podcast feed every week if you subscribe to it? It will, I promise. No lies here. So hit up iTunes or NPR One or any other fine purveyor of podcasts and subscribe. And after you've done that, please leave us a review. That way, incredibly attractive people such as yourself can find the show and enjoy it as much as you do. Thank you so much. As always, we love us some listener feedback. We are on Twitter at HearBigListen. That's H-E-A-R, Big Listen. So check us out. Or send us some electronic correspondence at BigListen at WAMU.org. And if you're feeling nostalgic and you want to hop in the Wayback Machine to send us an actual physical letter. I will not stop you. The show today was produced, mixed, and edited by Jacob Fenston. I, Lauren Ober, was sleeping in. Special thanks to Lion Tamer-in-Chief Beck Feldhouse Adams and to my main man Hans Anderson for helping out. David Schulman composed the theme music. Other music in the show came from Army Navy, the band, not the store. The Big Listen is the brainchild of boss lady Annie McDaniel and is produced by WAMU and distributed by NPR in Washington, D.C., capital of America. And now, a final thought from our good pal Jacques at the GAO Watchdog Report. Who is listening besides congressional staffers to your podcast? Um, you know, we don't have a kind of quantitative way of looking at, at, at who, who's there. Um, I was hoping that you did because right. then we could steal it. Right, right. Um, but we do know that people are listening. We do know, uh, you know, we hear from media folks that they're listening. We hear from kind of the general public. Uh, somebody tweeted last December, wow, at USGAO has a podcast. It's like Serial, but hosted by robots. Um, <laughs> and I was thought, you know, we're being mentioned in the same sentence as Serial. That is success. Um, it's true. I mean, some podcasts would kill kill for that exposure right right i mean and even the, if they were called robots right and I, and I thought you know put it put us in that conversation and i'll try to be a little less robotic and i will also try to sound less robotic <laughs> till next time keep listening america this believe it or not is npr